On the mountainous banks of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus preached his inaugural address concerning the principles of the kingdom of God. In his Sermon on the Mount, we find his revolutionary teachings which emphasize a new way of thinking and living for those in the kingdom. Found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount holds the central doctrines of Christianity and Christian discipleship. Every Christian must know and understand this sermon and must ask for divine help to live it out. In the beginning God said, Let there be light. In darkness there is death, in the light there is life. The Jewish people were supposed to be the light of the world. To the Jews God said, I the Lord have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to guide the nations. It was always God's intention to bring light to the whole world through his people. God sent his son Jesus to carry out his will by calling people to follow Christ in bringing light to a dead world, lost in darkness. The mark of every true believer is that he or she reflects the light, who is Jesus Christ. Today we learn what it means to be salt and light. Well, today we're starting something new, but something old. It's, uh, it's a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. So we began with the Beatitudes, and some of you remember what those Beatitudes are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the per, uh, peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted for Christ's sake. We did talk about that last week. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. And in case you don't know, uh, as, the, as the constitution of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, it tells us what the standards are, how we live, and not just how we live, it's not just an external thing, but it's how we think. It's what's in our heart. It's what motivates us. And it's critical that we understand this. Now, for some people, they approach this as an ethics lesson. This is not an ethics lesson. Rather, this is teaching that shows us how we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can live by these standards in their own strength. As the apostles would say, Lord, this is impossible. But Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus gives us the standards of the kingdom that are lived out in the life of the believer, the one who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian today, the mark of your faith or your belief in Christ 
is that you are under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever read Romans chapter 8, a beautiful picture is drawn for us of what it means to be under the power or the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're looking at, the, at, at this kingdom. It's a kingdom that is in opposition to the world. The world hates the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God represents the righteousness of God. And everybody who is a Christian, everybody who is in this kingdom now stands as a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Or, as we sometimes call it, the world. Yes, the world is under the control of Satan. The Bible is clear about that. The world is under the control of the prince of the air, the prince of darkness. His name is Satan. And this is why last week we talked about the persecution that we experience as Christians because Satan hates us and he hates the fact that we are obeying Jesus. We're living as Jesus called us to live. Very, very important to understand that. It's a completely different kingdom. Now, some of us who've maybe advanced in years a little bit, like myself, um, you, you look at the world and you think, wow, how did it get so bad? What is going on? This crazy world, and we curse the world, and we think the world is terrible. In fact, it is terrible. But that's not the question that we as Christians should be asking. John Stott, one of my absolute favorite a British theologian uh, and pastor, uh, he, here's what he said. He said, we should not ask what's wrong with the world. We already know it, right? He says, for that diagnosis, it's already been given. Rather, what we should be asking is what has happened to the salt and light? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. You and I, as Christians, are called to be salt and light. And we're going to talk about that. What does it mean to be salt and light? What we need to do is we need to recognize that this world is dying. It's perishing. This world, as John says, in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, he says it's passing away. It's dying. How many know there's a new heaven and a new earth coming? Anybody excited about that? Anybody scared of that? Mm. Well, if you are not a believer, you should be. I want you to know this world is full of death and disease, spiritual, physical, mental. It's, this world is dying. This world is not our home. How many know that? And we are told this constantly in Scripture. This world's not our home. We're passing through. We're, this, this is not where we belong. We belong to the kingdom of God. And so this world, it's putrefying, it's rotting, it's stinking, it's a terrible, terrible mess. But it's this world that God has called us to live in. Do you get that? We're not called to be Hutterites. We go away and we live in our own little colony or to be Amish or Mennonite. We are called to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to be salt and light in this world. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. In fact, everybody here today, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that this is the hardest thing of all, to live in the world and not be of it. 
This is always our struggle. The only way that we can survive this world is if we fully understand what it means to be salt and light. So listen to what John says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. He says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. That's very strong words. He's saying, if you love this world and the things of this world, you don't love God. And James reminds us of that. He says that the love of this world is enmity with God. Be clear about this. You have to understand this because we've got a problem now in the West in the Western world with, with, with so many people who call themselves Christians. We live like the world. We engage with the things of this world. We've got preachers on TV that tell us that God wants us to be rich. Even though Jesus says, you can't love God and money. You've got to, you're gonna hate one or, and, and love the other or vice versa. So if we, if we are gonna love God, then we have to, hate the world. And John goes on to say, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Isn't that exactly how, how money is being made nowadays? We are, we are appealing to people's desire, to people's craving for physical pleasure, whether it's sex or food or, uh, or, or just entertainment. There's a craving, John says, for everything we see and pride in our achievements and our possessions. There's a lot of Christians like that. They love to show off their clothes, their car, their house, whatever they've got. And yet, John says, these are not from the Father. This is not from God, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, John says. It's dying, it's passing away. A long look at this with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So we understand that as Christians, we reject the philosophies of this world and we embrace our God, who is the God of eternity. It's critical that you understand that. So what do we do until we get to eternity? How do we live until we get to be with Christ forever. Well, how do we live in this rotting world? And that's precisely why John Stott asked that question. What has happened to the salt and the light? Let me read to you from Matthew chapter five, and I'm actually picking up the, the last verses of the Beatitudes, which beautifully bring us in to this next passage that teaches us about salt and light. Matthew 5, verse 11. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Because you're living out these beatitudes, you will be hated and rejected. Did you know that? You act meekly, if you act uh, mercifully, if you're pure in heart, if you try to be a peacemaker, people are gonna hate you. Jesus says, be happy about it. All in favor of being persecuted, say aye. All opposed. <laughs> Nobody wants to be persecuted. 
But Jesus tells us that if this happens, we will, in fact, be glad, and great will our reward be. He says, in fact, great for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Now, you see, if you're, if you're attached to the things of this world, you don't really care too much about heaven. In fact, for many of us, we would like this to be heaven because things are going good for us. Wow. So here it is. Jesus says, remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. If you're feeling overwhelmed because you're persecuted for being salt and light, understand that this has been happening for generations, for millennia. People who have sought to honor God and to live as God called them to live have been persecuted. And Jesus says, if this happens to you, hey, you're on the right path, so rejoice, be glad, leap for joy. And then Jesus goes on to say this. You see, you are the salt and of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. This, my friends, is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You are the salt and the light of the earth, and you probably will be persecuted for it. But that's okay, Jesus says. If that happens, be glad, rejoice. Leap for joy, it says in Luke 6. Leap for joy, this is so wonderful. Imagine a church that came together to celebrate the fact that we're persecuted for Christ's sake. You don't see that. Can you imagine if that was the title of our church? The persecuted church, we leap for joy every time we're persecuted. And yet this is what the church looked like. This is what the church was, and this is what the church is. Jesus came to this world, you need to understand, to seek and to save what was lost. And who is that? Well, it's me. It's Ryan. Ryan's got his hand up. Jesus came to seek and to save you. Yes, ladies, Jesus came to seek and save you. It looks like it's just the four of us. Oh, there's another one, Doris. Anybody else? Jesus came to seek it. Yes, this is like a real good Pentecostal meeting. I see that hand. <laughs> Anybody else that Jesus came to seek and to save? Yes, amen, Christine, hallelujah. And there's a few others there that I'm going to believe, feel it in their hearts. He came to set up his kingdom in our hearts. Now, I need to show you something, because I know a lot of people don't understand this kingdom stuff. So I've showed this to you before. I'm going to show it to you again so that you're clear about what the kingdom of Jesus is. So it's a wonderful diagram. hope you can see it okay. But we see the beginning of the world, and it starts at creation. And then midway through, we see that Christ comes to the world, and then we see the end of the world and the beginning of the new heaven and earth. But I want you to see something. 
When Christ comes, when he begins to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this, my friends, is the beginning of the kingdom. Jesus says we know that the kingdom of heaven has arrived because evil spirits are being, are being cast out of people. This is the indication. So we know that the kingdom of God begins. Now, what is this kingdom? You need to know that this kingdom needs to be understood as, as distinct from this world. It's not the same. This kingdom is a kingdom of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. People who have said, Lord, I am aware of my sin. I know, God, I'm a sinner, and I deserve hell because of my sin. And Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to, to forgive me and that you would accept me. And now what you're doing is you are on this trail going this way. You repent and you start going this way. You're following Jesus. The moment that this happens in your life is the moment that you become part of this kingdom. But you'll notice that this kingdom extends right into eternity. So here's the cool thing. And Bill Ditchfield, who was sitting right here this morning, got really excited when I said this. I said, this kingdom that begins inaugurated in Christ, begins in Christ, and begins with this kingdom, the kingdom of uh, Sermon on the Mount, kingdom message, this is the beginning of eternity. Heaven, if you are a believer today, has begun for you already. Now, you're not in heaven yet, but you're beginning to experience the joy, the wonder of heaven now. Because now you're thinking about those things that have eternal significance. You don't care about the things of this world. You care about the things of eternity. And you can hardly wait to get there. Amen? Amen. Well, that sounds pretty good. So here we are. Until Jesus returns, until Jesus returns here, you and I are called to live as salt and light. Until you and I actually enter into eternity, until we're, till we're, we die and go into eternity, you and I are called to live as salt and light right here and right now. All in favor, say aye. All opposed, out. No, <laughs> no, you can stay where you are. So here we are, um, salt and light. So if you wanted to, you could sum it up in a word. You and I as Christians are called to be an influence. We influence our friends, we influence our family, we influence the people we work with. We, we are a, a presence wherever we go. I always love it when people say they visited our church and they felt there was something very special about here, something very warm and friendly. Well, I can tell you that is the presence of God in, the, in his people. So, as Christians, we're, we're exerting a holy influence in this world, and Jesus calls it being salt and being light. So, when Jesus begins this sermon, he begins with his Beatitudes. Here's the, here are the norms, the standards of this kingdom, and as a Christian, you are going to be a meek person, you're going to be a peacemaker, you are going to uh, be pure in heart, you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and this is going to change how you live. And it's going to make people around you feel very uncomfortable. 
It's not that you're judging them or condemning them with anything that you say, but by your actions and by your refusal to participate in the things that they're doing and the things that they're saying and the smutty jokes that they're telling makes them feel very uncomfortable. Because you don't want to take part in that. Obviously, then it's impossible for you and I to say, well, my faith is is a private thing. Has anybody ever said that? Don't put your hand up. It's not a good idea. There's no such thing as a private faith. Not if you're going to live as Jesus called you to live. If you're going to be salt and light, there's nothing private about light. There's something very private about darkness, but never anything private about light. Light, by definition, cannot be private. When you turn the light on in a dark room, that's what you're looking at, and that's the only thing you see. I'm telling you, folks, as Christians, this is who we are. We are light in a very dark world. The righteousness of this life will attract attention. People are going to look at us for, for, for better or for worse, but people are going to notice. And I'm going to tell you, uh, oftentimes that will mean that you, as I've said, in, as I've read to you from Matthew 5, it means that you're going to be persecuted. And you didn't even do anything wrong. Don't you hate that? You did nothing wrong but be salt and light. You did nothing right, wrong but, but be righteous. And Jesus says, yeah, you probably will be will be." persecuted. So here, here's the thing. There's no such thing as being a Christian in, in isolation. There's nothing, you can't be a private Christian. Does everybody get that? Say amen if you understand what I'm saying. Do I need to belabor it, belabor this? Okay, I'll shut up then. I've been told. Jesus gives two metaphors to help us understand what it means to be a Christian in this world, and it's salt and it's light. So let me just quickly look at I'll look together with you at the salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus is saying this. This is not a suggestion, okay? <laughs> How many you know that the Lord does not give us suggestions? Ever. There are no suggestions. This is, this is, these are facts. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says this, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and what? Trampled under people's feet. So what Jesus is saying is that if, in fact, you call yourself a Christian, but you are not living as salt and light, well, the fact is is that you're pretty useless. And there's maybe even a chance that you're, you're really not converted like you think you are. Think about that. In the ancient world, salt was used for preservation. There was no such thing as, as refrigerators or freezers. It, this is all they had to preserve their food. So you can, you can understand how very critical it is that people had a supply of some kind of salt to preserve their food. It was really, it was fundamental to their, to their survival. And this is why in ancient times, salt was worth the same as gold. In some cases, it was worth more than gold. In fact, people were paid a salary in salt. Can you imagine getting a bag of salt for the job that you do? 
But this is, what, this is what happened then. And if you were not a good worker, what would they say? They would say, he's not worth his salt. Interesting, isn't it? Salt, extremely valuable because it's a preservative. And more than being a preservative, uh, and we all understand this, it's, it, it's a, it flavors food. It, it actually enhances food. And I want you to see that this is exactly who we are. Not only are we a preservative against the evil of this world, we actually hold back the waves of evil that are sweeping over this world. Did you know that? If there was no church, God help this world. It would be a hell without the presence of God's people. Not only do we hold back the tides of evil, just by being who we are. But we also enhance what's great, what's wonderful about this world. We make this world a better place. And you can see it in our music, in our art, in the, in the ways that we interact with people, in the ways that we, we advance the causes of those who are in need. Yes, we hold back evil and we enhance life on this planet. Now, apart from his disciples, the world turns even more rotten. Did you get that? This is why it's so critical that you and I resist this idea that we can be private Christians. It's not biblical. It's not acceptable. It's disobedience to Christ. This world becomes more and more rotten as long as Christians are not doing what God has called them to do. You see, Christians have this effect of delaying moral and spiritual decay. Hey, this world is passing away. You need to understand that. But while we're here, we, we bring conditions that are favorable to evangelism. Did you get that? We bring conditions that are favorable so that people can hear the gospel and to respond to Jesus Christ. This is why we have to be salt and light. It's critical that we are salt and light. And if our lives conform to the standards of the Beatitudes, which we read about and we studied all through the summer, if you haven't heard them, go back and listen to them online. If we are not, if our lives are not conforming to these standards, then the fact of the matter is is that we cannot help but be uh, of no use if we are not conforming to the Beatitudes. If we are conforming to the Beatitudes, then we are going to be a preservative for good in our society. When uh, I first got to this church, to this community, we were over on Elgin Avenue, and we began our kids' programs, and we started reaching out to the community, to the school, and on and on. And one day I had a, a police officer stop in, and he said, I need to talk to you. And I thought, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> And he sat across the desk from me, and he says, you know, I am, the, I am the police officer on duty in this community. That's when they still were doing that. I don't know if they still do it, but back then they were. He says, I got to tell you something, Pastor, and I'm not going to tell it to you the way he told it to me because he used some pretty salty language. Uh, but he said to me, uh, Pastor, whatever you're doing, keep on doing it because the crime rates are going down in this community because of what you're doing. I said, how do you know that? He says, uh, I've got my spies 
I've got my people. And I thought to myself in that moment, wow, the power of God's people, the power of the church to transform a community just by being there, just by reaching out, just by loving the community. Now that's somebody who's not even a Christian who recognized, who understood what we were doing. So what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Well, I gotta remind you that the purpose of salt is to, to fight deterioration. And this is one of the things that he pointed out. He said, we're seeing less graffiti, we're seeing less vandalism, less windows broken. He says, it's whatever you're doing, pastor, keep on doing it. Well, that's, that's the power of salt. It's to fight deterioration. And therefore, it must itself never deteriorate. How, does salt, how could salt deteriorate? Because salt is salt. I mean, you know, no matter what you do to it, it remains salt. Here's, here's the thing. When salt becomes contaminated, and this can happen so easily to any one of us, when salt can be contaminated with, with sand, for instance, now you can't put that on your food, can you? You can't use that to preserve food because it's, it's, it's contaminated. It's got contaminants in it. What good is that salt now? Throw it out. Throw it on the ground. You may as well walk on it because it's useless. And so you and I as Christians must understand that our responsibility is to remain salty for the glory of God. Wow. If you and I are salty, then we're useful. If we're not salty, we're useless. And it's not Alan Dunkef who said that. It's Jesus who said that. Now, the worse the world becomes, the more its corruption increases rapidly and the, and, and the more the church is needed to do what the church is called to be. Why? So that we have favorable conditions for evangelism. So that people will hear the gospel and that people will see and understand that it's real, that it's supernatural. It's from God. Well, the second thing that Jesus says is that you and I are the light of the world. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. Christians are light. As well as, as well as salt. We, we mitigate the, the, the darkness. Wherever there's light, it has a far-reaching effect. Let me give you a, an example. A friend of ours, Tim, was, uh, loved to do astronomy. He had a massive telescope. And he'd say, well, we want to set up the telescope and go look at the moon and go look at the stars. So I'd say, sure, well, why do we have to go anywhere? Let's just do it right here. And he looked at me like I was an utter idiot. He said, have you never heard of light pollution? I've heard of all kinds of pollution, but never light pollution. He says, you can't look at the stars in the city because there's too much light here. We have to go to, the, to utter darkness. We have to find a place where there is absolutely no light pollution so that when he set up his telescope, we could look at Saturn, we could look at uh, uh, Jupiter, I think. We looked at Venus. We looked at the moon. I mean, it was the most a thrilling thing. We needed to go to utter darkness. 
Now, here's the thing. The church is like a city on a hill. We cast a light, and and it has far-reaching effects. We have to drive so far out of the city to get away from the light in order to see through that telescope. Let the Spirit of God speak to you now, because I want you to see the power, the powerful effect of the church. We don't need to be a people who rise up and, and, and with guns or, or with proclamations or protestations. This is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, Jesus is, is not talking about a personal confrontation, nor is he talking about a church proclamation. Rather, what he's talking about is the light being good deeds performed by his followers. Just by being present, just by being there. Jesus is not talking about being an activist here. He's talking rather about who we are. He's not talking about our doing as much as who we are. The doing always flows out of the being. If you don't have the being, then all you've got is the law and religion. But if you are somebody gripped by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, then the fruit that comes out of you will be this salt and light that Jesus is talking about. This is why Jesus says in John 15, you have to abide in me. You have to abide in Christ. You have to dwell in Christ so that you produce this godly fruit of meekness and righteousness and a pure heart and being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, merciful, hungry, thirsty for righteousness. Wow, this is true Christianity. The Christian community, wherever we are, our light Our light shines bright and it shines far and people have to drive a long way out of the city to get away from the effects and the power of the light which is the church of Jesus Christ. The darkness flees. In fact, the Bible says that the darkness cannot understand or cannot overwhelm the light. Do you understand the power of the church? Does everybody understand this? If you and I are are truly and seriously following Jesus, we have a power beyond anything that you can understand or conceive. The, The light always overcomes and overwhelms the darkness. And interestingly, when, it, when you look at that verse in the Greek, the word that is translated uh, overwhelmed also could be translated as understand. The darkness doesn't understand the light. That's why we're persecuted. That's why Christians are hated. That's why our message is hated. Because the darkness doesn't understand the light. So therefore, you and I are called to be the light of the world. And so we're, we're, we're a city on a, on a hill. We're also a lamp on a, on a lampstand. And we don't put that, that light under a basket because that's absurd. That's not, that's not why a light is put on a lampstand. It's, it's absurd to do that. And yet, isn't that how we as Christians too often live? We say we're Christians, but we don't want anybody to know about it. Let's keep this. Don't tell anybody. It's private. My faith is private. No, it's not. 
And there's no scripture verse that you can find in the Bible that would support that notion. It's not true. No, you and I are called to be light, and we do not cover that light up. We do not do anything to hide it. Every Christmas, Christmas Eve, we always get the little finger lights. I wish I had one to show you. But what we do is we, we turn off everything in the building, even the projector, because the projectors have tiny little lights on that tell you whether it's on or off. We turn everything off, and then we turn on one light, and the effect is so powerful, and every year I'm amazed at that. We turn on that little light, and then we sing this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. That one little light, the place is pitch black. Turn on that little light, and now it's enough light to see to get your directions, to get, to get your, your, your bearings. You know which way to go. You know where everything is. You can actually see things. Folks, that is the power of light. And you say, Pastor Ellen, I'm not a very strong light. It's okay. Whatever light you have is good enough. It'll get the job done. It'll drive away the darkness. And you and I are called to be light to our family and to our friends and and any group that we're with. And I'm going to tell you this. If the people that you're with don't know that you're a Christian, then that's a red flag that should seriously concern you. If they don't know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and that you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you've got a serious problem. And you need to address that. You need to pay attention to that. Christians who let their light shine reduce the blackness, which otherwise is utterly suffocating. Some of you, before you came to Christ, you dwelt in a suffocating darkness. The best thing that ever happened to you is that you found the light of Jesus Christ. Some of you didn't want to live another day. Some of you wanted to commit suicide. Some of you tried to deal with the darkness by drinking yourself silly, by smoking pot and doing anything you could just to escape this darkness, this suffocating darkness. The light of Jesus came, and maybe it came through a friend or a family member, and suddenly you had hope. And suddenly you found your way because somebody understood the call of Christ to be the light of the world. Wow. This business of being the light of the world, this business of being the salt, remember, it's not about personal confrontation. You're not confront- confronting anybody. And you're, I'm not making proclamations from on high. No, we're just being salt and salt and light, and we're changing the world. I was reading an interesting book by D.W. Dayton. He wrote a book called "Discovering an Evangelical Heritage." Some of you uh, uh, hate the word evangelical. I'm going to tell you that you are sincerely wrong in that, because an evangelical, a true evangelical, is somebody who understands the gospel and preaches the gospel. It's not somebody who's political, but it's someone who loves Jesus and wants to proclaim that. That's where the term came from in the first place. It was so that those who were serious about proclaiming the gospel had an umbrella under which they could come together and say, this is who I am. 
And so these famous men like George Whitfield and John Wesley and, and uh, Howell Harris, Lord Shaftesbury, William Wilberforce, and others, these men heard the proclamation of the gospel. And by the way, this is a gospel-preaching church. And the gospel that transformed these men's lives were, was this. They heard some preacher faithfully preached, you are a sinner and you need to repent. You are a sinner that needs to be saved. And these, these famous men like William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury, in fact, there's a Shaftesbury school that's named after Lord Shaftesbury. There's a street in the other end of town named after this man, a great man, a great godly man. Heard this gospel. You're a preacher or you're a sinner and you need the voice of the preacher to tell you that, to repent. And that's what they did. Before they were going their own way, they heard that they were sinner. they need to repent and turn to Christ. They, they went the other direction, they began to follow Jesus, and I'm gonna tell you, they became salt and light because of the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And what happened next is unbelievable. These men, after hearing the gospel and discovering that they were salt and light, they said, how should, we how should we respond to this? And they saw the brutal conditions in prison. And these were the, these were the men who, who, who began the prison reformation. And they began to, to medical care for those who couldn't afford it. They established hospitals and clinics. And Christians have been doing that for hundreds of years. They I didn't know this. I haven't had a chance to research this myself. But, but Dayton says that, that it was Christians that started trade unions looking out for the worker because of, of unfair employing, employers. It was Christians who, who controlled and, and, and ceased, stopped the perversion of the liquor trade. It was Christians that abolished and moved for the abolition of slavery. It was Christians who moved for the abolition of child labor. It was Christians who established orphanages. It was Christians who reformed the penal code. And the list goes on and on and on. And folks, that's why we're involved in Burundi. That's why we're doing the work with our orphanages. There's some 400 kids, many of which are supported by people right here in this church or connected to this church. This is who we are. We're salt and we're light. But understand that this flows out of who we are, out of our being. This is how we change the world. Not by being obnoxious and loud, but rather by being loving. Marilyn Wedlake was told before she died by, I can't remember if it was the, the principal of Cecil Road School, but there's somebody in Cecil Road School who said to us that the kids in the school were better behaved because of the influence of this church. That's what the church does. This is who we are. We are, the church is, is like a, a city on the hill. Our light is cast far and wide and has magnificent impact, driving away the darkness. The question is this, why do we do it? Well, here's what Jesus says. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Look at this, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
This is who we are. This is not a private faith. This is a very, very public faith. Are we prepared to live like this? Because when you are the salt and the light of this world, you cause people to glorify your Father in heaven. The Westminster Confession, you've heard me say this before, asks the question, what is the chief purpose of humans? And I hear this question all the time. What is my purpose in this life? Why, why am I here? Why was I created? Or if you're not a Christian, why did I evolve? And the answer is very simple. You were created. You're here today to bring glory to God to cause other people to praise your Father in heaven. That's your purpose. And church, this is what you, we need to do when we go from this place today. We need to go out of here being salt and light so that we can cause people to glorify our Father in heaven. Just like the official at Cecil Road School, just like the police officer said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you're making a difference. You're changing the community. That's who we are. Charlene told me after the service, I, I asked everybody the question, are you going to follow Satan in this world or are you going to follow Jesus who is the light of the world? And little Samuel immediately answered, it was a rhetorical question, but he answered it anyway. And he said, quite loudly, I'm going to follow Jesus. Who are you going to follow? Let's stand. Father, thank you for your presence and your power at work in us. God, you've called us to be salt and light, and God, we can't do this in our own strength and our own power, but the good news is we have your Holy Spirit who dwells in us because we were born again. We received your Holy Spirit in that hour, that day that we were born again. And now we're asking, Father, that we would allow your Spirit to move in us and use us to bring light to a world that's in darkness, to bring preservation to a world that is rotten and stinking. May our lives be used for your glory and honor. May we find ourselves following Jesus. And we pray that in your name. And everyone said it with me. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.